This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. Before we get into it with my buddy Andrew Alexander, the return of Blacksmith Tools, let's just take care of a little business. What do you say? Number one is Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all-natural food-safe wax for your axe, for your steel, for your wood, for whatever you got. I just, I'm about to get ready to go to Maker's Camp, and I use some Axe Wax on all my hammer handles before I do... Uh, some of my demoing, and I'm, I'm excited to use it. It's great stuff, especially for, for wood or steel or whatever. And if you go to axwax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off your order, and it's great. And I would definitely take advantage of that. If you are in the U.K., U.K. Knife Supplies takes Full Blast 10 for Axwax. KnifeMaterial.at in the EU takes uh, Full Blast 10 for the Axe Wax. Gamaco in Australia, that's artisansupply.com.au. They're taking Full Blast 10. And if you're also in Australia, you go to nordicedge.com.au, and those guys are taking Full Blast 10 for Axe Wax. Axe Wax is global, ladies and germs, so go get yourself some of that Axe Wax. Next is Total Boat. Total Boat makes great products. They make adhesives, paints, primers, polishing compounds. They started out for boaters and DIYers working on their boats in the, in the, on the weekends, and then they realized, hey, maybe there's a different market. So Total Boat started uh, really talking to more makers, and they have all sorts of high, uh, um, two-part epoxies and high-performance epoxies, and they've been having great success. There's a lot of guys who are doing epoxy pours, and they're using their epoxy for making handle scales and for hybrid materials. And if you go to... Totalboat.com, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off your order. I like the uh, Total Boat High Performance Two-Part Epoxy. I've been using it for laminating handle scales together. I love, love, love the UV Cure Clear Resin. It's that You put it a little bit in, hit it with the UV flashlight, and then all of a sudden it's nice and hard. Uh, lots of guys are using the Thick Set Casting Epoxies and all their other um, different types of epoxies. Guys like Keith Decent, Derek from Alden. Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell, Jimmy Deresta, they're all using Total Boat. So if you go to TotalBoat.com, put in the promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off your Total Boat. And I'm going to go see the Total Boat guys at Maker Camp. I'm looking forward to seeing Kristen and all of them. And uh, go get your. I appreciate their, their uh, supporting the Maker community and supporting this podcast. So Total Boat, baby. Um, thank you. Next is Trojan Horse Forge. Those guys are awesome. The Trojan Horse Forge. THF Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vice is awesome. I have two, and they are beautiful. They're built in the heart of Texas. These vices are designed to take your handle finishing to a whole new level with features you won't find anywhere else. When it arrives, it comes in a bomb-proof case, which is unbelievable. This thing is so... I just talked to Craig Lockwood. In, uh, he's in France, and he just got his... Uh, his vice just showed up, and he was like, "This thing is amazing." I, I was stu- he was like stupefied when he opened it up. It comes with all sorts of parts and uh, uh, little bolts that kind of position your knife. And what the great part is, is it's not only for hand- sanding your handle, but it's also for sanding your blade. So they have these plates with rubber on them. It protects all the steel and all your scratch patterns. However, you do it, satin finish, and all that, and you can lay it down, and the tank side fits into the vice. And it supports your knife. And then what you can do is you can comfortably hand sand your knife. Um, and if it's a kukri or it's a distal taper, it has these little adjustments to, to um, 
stabilize your knife. So go get yourself one of them uh, at, uh, THF Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vices at TrojanHorseForge.com. Um, if you put in the promo code Full Blast, you're going to get um, you're going to get free shipping in the United States, and it's great. I mean, it really is. I've trucked all my. I've made a ton of uh, two by fours that I use to hand sand my blades, and they're all gone. And now I have two stable rail finishing vices, and they're really great for not only the hand sanding of the blade, but also finishing your handle. So they, uh, they're definitely, it's a high-performance vice, man. The thing is awesome, and they're not in stock all the time. So when, they're in, when they make them in batches, go get yourself one of them. So TrojanHorseForge.com. Thanks, guys. I look forward to seeing you in the future. Trojan Horse Forge. And they take payment. They have a payment plan option. So if you want to just, you know, you don't want to put a, you don't want to lump it all out, I understand. And they understand too. So you can pay in payments. So TrojanHorseForge.com. All right, guys? Uh, full blast for free shipping. And last but not least is Maritime Knife Supplies. MaritimeKnifeSupply.ca. Lawrence is doing a great job working with the knife making community to make sure that you have all of your abrasive steels, kilns, forges, presses, heat treating ovens, anvils, everything you need to get started or resupply. I just found out that they have. Uh, here's a hot tip. Um, Matt Parkinson makes these uh, ch- uh, chisels, the Rockwell chisels, and he—I have a pair. I got a pair years ago, and they're great. And they—they're little chisels. That each one is a different Rockwell, so you can test your Rockwell of your knife with these chisels. And Lawrence has them in stock, so go get yourself one of them. You can get yourself some axe wax up there. You can get uh, the the um, Dr. Laren Thomas's book, uh, Knife Engineering, is there. He's got everything, and and what's happening is is Lawrence is really listening to the knife making community and making sure that he has the stuff that you need for your knife making. So go get yourself some of that, uh, especially if you get uh, ten packs of abrasive belts, you're gonna get ten percent off your order, uh, off your belts. He's giving you ten percent off on packs of ten, and he's you know doing a lot of good stuff in Canada, but he's also selling a lot of knives, uh, knife making supplies to the United States. Uh, I just placed an order for some belts, and it came in a couple days. So definitely shop with Maritime Knife Supplies. They're the, they're a hot little company, and Lawrence is doing everything out of his uh, out of he's doing everything out of his uh, out of his uh, house, and it's, he's doing a great job. So MaritimeKnifeSupply.ca. Okay, guys, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But really big thank you to my next guest, Andrew Alexander, back again. He's been very flexible. We've been having some weather issues, apparently, that's been affecting podcasting. Andrew, how are you? I'm outstanding, man. Thank you. Well, it's I appreciate you changing days because we were supposed to record yesterday, and I got a message from Craig Lockwood saying that there was this message from a number of different uh, podcast software services saying that, Hurricane Fiona affected the partnerships that they have with other, you know, whatever, podcasting platforms or whatever, and there was no access to recording or editing or it was a strange weather occurrence that affected their their thing. So we're we're down in down in Florida, Hurricane Florida, uh, Hurricane Fiona came through and now I think Hurricane Ian's about to hit and uh we're sending our best regards to florida what does that mean that the like wherever the like the servers and uh, the hardware that kind of run the podcast platform maybe had been interrupted by a power outage or similar 
I don't know. It was weird because it's like it's a glo- these these a lot of these services like we're using TriCast right now and we use Squadcast before, and they're global. But I don't know had something to do. Well, Fiona didn't really. I don't think Fiona beat the shit out of Florida, but it really you know tore up Puerto Rico and a lot of the Caribbean. Right. I don't know why. I don't know how it. I don't know how it happens. But I don't know. I don't know how it affects the infrastructure. But it was like a. It affected this global infrastructure. This hurricane. That's so interesting. It's it's uh, I'd be interested to see how that affects the podcast economy, you know, because that's probably the first time like a platform's gone down where you couldn't post, you know. It was bumped for like probably half a day. Like okay. I, we did, but we didn't know. That's why when I I called you, I had to like say oh, I just don't know when it's going to be back, and it, and it was like, you know, half a day, two different servers are out. So I I don't know. I mean, it's weird. You know, the the weird thing about the weather in general is is that. I, I just I I this time of year especially this time of year especially is like hurricane season in the northeast. Yeah. Like actually it's usually before kind of August through September. August through September. I don't know how people live in Florida to be honest with you with these hurricanes. I don't know how they do it. Yeah, they just build houses that are that are thicker walled, better materials. Well, but also they'll have like our they'll have like these uh I was talking I talked to my friend Jonathan Porter from Doghouse Forge all the time. And they have what's called a lanai. You know about lanais? No, tell me about that. A lanai is usually they have these, like you said, they have these brick shit house houses that are. I'm mean, gonna say brick shit house. I mean they're like built like a monster, and they'll have these aluminum extrusions off the side of the house with, you know, uh, fly netting, uh, fly, you know, whatever the netting so flies don't get in, and then they'll have like a pool. Right, and then the lanai are built so when the hurricane comes through, they just they're super duper easy to replace because they're just all the aluminum extrusions, and you can just kind of like they're meant to be like ripped off and, and replaced. Wow, interesting. That yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's not that interesting, but I mean, it's like I don't know. I be honest with you, I don't know how people live in in hurricane areas. It's just like it's beyond me. Right, or or if you would you know choose that as an elective to live somewhere. Knowing that, you know, a weather pattern could possibly knock you out. I, I mean, the, the Caribbean is the worst. I mean, I, I was in the Caribbean twice. In uh, my wife and I used to go to St. John, the Virgin Islands, right? Um, back in the day, and we would go at the most, the cheapest time to go, which is hurricane season. Just we just didn't have any money, and we wanted to stay places. And we got caught in two hurricanes, yeah, two hurricanes, two different times, and to the, to the point where. The first time we stayed at this eco lodge, and it was like uh, cabins, and like you know they built these cabins, and they're like meant to be like ripped. You know, they the, when the hurricanes come, they are easy to rebuild. So okay. we got we got uh, we got um, evacuated, and then the next year they said when we came back, they were like, well, we've never had to evacuate the same family twice. So they put us in like a bunkhouse, huh. and it was like. But I don't know how I don't know how people get through these things. I don't. Know, it would be too all encompassing for me. I don't right. Know, I don't, yeah, that's that's a that was an interesting thing to think about. And we we've got tornadoes here in Texas, and you know they're they're not often, but when they come, they're so destructive that you know, like I don't have a basement at my house. Basements really are more popular as you go north, like into Oklahoma. But when you see the destruction of a tornado, you 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 gotta wonder why the heck do you not have a basement? I, I that that is I. All these weather. I mean, I, the worst part is, is like my kid's about to go to college, and the, was she? We live in the Northeast. We live in New York, and she's like, "I'm staying. I want to be away from New York. I can't handle the winters." 
So she wants to go anywhere that doesn't have the winters of New York. Right. So I mean, you know, I don't, I completely understand that, but at the same time, it's like you know, we deal with these weather, this weather, and like the hurricane season. Ah, we talk about the weather. How have you been? <laughs> How have you been? We don't talk about the weather. What is this? The Weather Channel? Yeah, is this NPR or what? This is no. a pretty soft open. Yeah, um, super soft. I've been amazing. I've been really, really good. I uh, I was just recently in Troy, Ohio, at the uh, Quad State Sofa. Uh, blacksmith annual gathering there yeah what a what a great event that was and to see you know old friends and you know the tools and um i talked to a lot of the old timers when we were there that are collectors and it's been on my mind a lot recently about what happens to collections and what happens to tools and what happens to shops uh you know as these guys get older like we're still young enough to where it's not you know, something that needs to be like the forefront of our minds. But right. if I was to die today, it would be a complete nightmare for my wife. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like there, yeah. and I'm not, I'm not saying like, oh, I have so much stuff, but I literally have so much stuff that it would be a burden for her. So do you think about, I mean, do you think like, what should I do at this point? Or should I be Absolutely. thinking about that kind of stuff? Absolutely. So I, when I was in, in Troy, Ohio, I wanted to ask the guys that were, you know, in the age bracket that need to be thinking about that stuff. And when I say tool collectors, that doesn't mean that they necessarily have like, uh, like mounds and mounds and mounds and mounds. Some of these guys collect the finest and nicest things and have two or three or four, you know, of a category and, and that's it. Right. So it's, it, it, uh, I just want to, to highlight the fact that tool collectors don't necessarily like hold all of the tools, which is a misconception. Uh, go I ahead. watched your I watched your video. I watched the video that you posted showing all the different. And I mean, I'm fascinated by all those. I mean, all, people brought so many goddamn anvils. I couldn't believe. I was just like, I thought there was like an anvil shortage. Obviously, there isn't. No, there's no anvil shortage. No way. If you there is there is documentation. Like, you could take, for instance, like Peter Wright or Mousehole or any of those companies and get some of their shipping records from back in the day. They were shipping hundreds of thousands of anvils over in the ballast of ships back in the day. And you can't even imagine how many anvils are out there still. You know, so anybody that gets butthurt about, oh, so-and-so has too many or whatever, they're just not really making the effort to go get one if that's what they desire. They may just be barking to be heard. What's interesting is, is I was thinking a lot about uh, Richard Postman of who wrote yes. Anvils in America. This is something that I've been... I, I know that you knew him and then you had posted about him. I actually was... Uh, two episodes ago, I was talking to Jesse Savage about Richard Postman who created one of the b- most important blacksmithing books, really, to, in modern day Anvils in America. Sure. It's called the Anvil Bible. It's it's the crazy part is about anvils in America is that it was he started it in in 1982, right? You know this that the records weren't as vast as you know they should have been. Sure, there was really the internet wasn't as prevalent. But then I guess books weren't that prevalent either, right? He you know how he wrote that book was boots on the ground. Yeah. That was boots on the ground. That Google was not in existence in the format that it is today. 
and when he started writing that book, he just visited. He went to other countries. He talked, you know, he was a detective. I mean, unbelievable amount of information that he assembled, right? Uh, so one of the nights when I was up there in Ohio, I went to dinner with some of the some of the heavy hitters in uh, the anvil world, if you will. You have John Catchings, who wrote a book about miniature anvils and is also an anvil historian of all sizes. You had Josh Cavett, who uh, has the Fisher Norris Museum and wrote the Fisher Norris book. You had uh, uh, Steve Perilowitz, Lee, Lee Morell, Mark Yoder, all these people that are really, really sharp about anvils, right? And we were talking about Postman. And it's amazing to have, uh, for someone to have a legacy that's so so great. I just, I, when when someone passes away and you only ever hear good things about them, that is, that's just such a great feeling, right? Well, what was he like? I mean, you met him. You spent some time with him. There's a great video on your Instagram where you're like sitting in his living room and he's telling stories. Yeah, so uh, when I bought the Postman Anvil collection, we went up, uh, it was myself, Aaron Sergal, Phil Kratz, some friends of mine, and we were sitting there talking to uh, Mr. Postman in his house, and he gets in his lazy boy recliner chair and kind of kicks the deal back, you know, and yeah. has an Ambles in America book in his hand. And he goes, y'all just sit down for a minute, and I want to read you, you know, the first couple, three, four pages of the book. And I was like, I mean, it reminded me of grade school, like, you know, yeah. where you heard a really cool uh, book for the first time, you know, the... Uh, What's the Shel Silverstein one about the apple or something like that? Uh, something in the attic. Something, something in the apple. I know what you're talking it's about. It's just yeah, like one of those yeah, books yeah, yeah. that you're like, where, where, where you the heard, sidewalk ends. There's one yeah, the where the sidewalk, sidewalk ends. ends. Yeah. Right. Where you heard it the first time and you're like, damn, that's a good book. Wow. But then you're hearing it from the, you, it's not an audio book. You're sitting there with the guy that wrote it in person. And it has significance to your life because you spent 20 plus years in love with these things that he's writing about, right? So the historical aspect is great. The author's great. So I just sat there just mesmerized, Indian style, at his feet as he read this book. Like, like uh, it, it was quite an event. Now, what, what did he do? I mean, he wasn't a blacksmith per se. I mean, from what the book, the introduction of the anvils in America says was that he was like, a, he was teaching metalwork at some point, and then he was looking up some information he just couldn't find? Yes, and then he just went on this wild, you know, this wild goose chase to, to find it all out and never stopped. You know, what's very interesting is there is what I would consider to be uh, enough information to do anvils in America too. That's what. Well, that's what Jesse said that he had. Jesse Savage said that he wrote. Uh, he wrote uh, Richard Postman a letter, and then he was asking questions about the uh, anvils, and that Richard wrote back in the letter to Jesse that they were working on anvils too. Yes. So there's there's uh, several chapters that have been you know rough uh, rough drafted, if you will, or rough formatted. So the kids, there's two kids, and they're you know trying to figure out what. What does that? What does it look like? You know, to to get that information out there. So the, the, the this is what I suggested and recommended was: Hey, I'm happy to, you know, fund getting the second book written and completed, published. Right? 
Right. It just has to. We need to find the right person that knows how to you know format it and knows what to put where and all that. I am not that person by any chance, nor do I have the time. Right. So while I was in Troy, Ohio, at that dinner with all those people, I you know proposed to them. You know, why not get this second book out? You know, and tried to get one of them to step up to the plate to do it. And they just, no one really could commit. You know, Josh Cavett, that just did the Fisher Norris book, he, he uh, credits his two daughters for, you know, really helping him get that, that book completed and published. And since the completion of that book and publishing of the book, one of his daughters has become, uh, ironically, like a world-renowned chess player influencer. Huh. Or checkers, maybe. Like something bizarre. <laughs> checkers would be bizarre. I think it was che- checkers because when he said it, I looked checkers. up at him and I was like, "What? The f- what? <laughs> checkers? Like, okay, whatever. Yeah, tic tac toes next or hopscotch <laughs> yeah. or some shit. <laughs> so master at tic tac toe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, he was kind of out. There was another guy that you know probably could do it, but he was like, "I'm retired," and I'm thinking. Yeah, dude, you're you're retired. It's, it's perfect. 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 Like, <laughs> you know what else are you gonna do? And uh, anyway, so we're, we're it's just the beginning stages of that. But I do feel like that book 2.0 needs to be you know published. There's a lot of information that is not wrong in that book, but there's a lot to add to the information that's in the book. So it would be an addition, like they would just like it would be. A companion, or it would be a different, a new edition of Anvils in America. That's the whole thing. Is like right, you don't know. The, the information that he's you know accumulated. I haven't seen it, so I really don't know what the what the categories are. But it would take the, you know a, some book person to uh, to help get that together. I mean, it's an amazing book because it's so comprehensive. Totally. Like, and the the interesting thing is is like. I feel that the crazy thing is is that this is so comprehensive and it was made, it started in the 80s and I think it was first published in like the 90s. Yeah, 98. Right? 98, which is crazy too. You know, this so this book is like not even 25 years old. Yeah. And and the the interesting thing is is like when I when I first looked through Anvils in America, okay, I'm reading about how I, certain anvils were made and how they're shipped and it was interesting and all you can see is these these black and white pictures and then the the advertisements that these anvil companies were using and when you kind of like contrast that with how we see anvils now where you have the internet and you have you know images and you don't have to read and you don't you don't have to look at these things it is it's the it's the it's the contrast between how humanity saw forging and blacksmithing to how they see it now right yeah it's very interesting you know? it, it, because it, because people don't want to read uh you know people don't want to read they want to watch. Yeah, they so like, want to. Like, they want to have a real theatrical, like Don LaFontaine opening to some right. blast off of an anvil, you know, uh, video. Totally. Well, the, you know, Fortune Fire had it right in the beginning when they when they said, "All right, we want to see you know flames coming when you're quenching your knife. We want to see some flames, even though that it's wrong. That the viewer wants to see flames and they want to see fire. And now when you look at people doing you know instagram they're, they're making sure that that steel is hot and their camera is capturing how hot it is right and you're you're seeing now i i believe that this is the golden age just to a certain degree 
more people are seeing forging now globally as easily and as interesting than they ever have. Why do you suspect that is? I think that I think that for years and years and years I've always made the joke that people think anvils are for wily coyote. And the only time you ever really saw anvils on any type of TV or movies was cartoons. And there was no real imagery. You see pictures. You see pictures of old guys with, like, you know, their overalls and their long beard and they're shoeing a horse and stuff like that. But there's no idea of what's going on. I mean, the crazy thing is, is like, you know, you talk to a lot of farriers and they'll say half being a farrier isn't even forging. It's like almost being more like a veterinarian. But we imagine people, you know, for the longest time people say, oh, you're a blacksmith and you shoe horses. Yeah. So now you're able to see these reels and you see on the Internet and you see guys who are with a lot of followers doing and getting millions of views. And it's much more interesting because people are saying, wow, that's really interesting. That's really cool. That's I want to see more. And, you know, you're, you're starting to see more vernacular that normal people are using that they weren't using 20 years ago. Sure, sure. You know. I think the artistic side of it is what people are being drawn to. You know, seeing the seeing the finished product. Oh my gosh, this is a great product. How in the heck was it made? Oh, it was forged by a blacksmith. Well, what is a blacksmith? You know. What's interesting is how blacksmithing has pivoted over centuries. Totally. You know, that's what's interesting to me, and I, it almost seems like and I guess I'm, you know, a lot of the questions I have for you are kind of more historical. The, the idea that, like, the idea that, you know, the pivoting of blacksmithing for making chains and making, you know, pots and pans and knives and stuff like that for a kitchen to making railings to making, you know, all these different things that were used for civilization, you know? Right. And, like, there's a huge pivot. Like, people now are far more interested in knives and tool making and stuff like that. And it's almost as if people want to, and I wonder if, the people who are buying hammers and being and buying power hammers and getting into blacksmithing and bladesmithing, they're not getting into it to make railings or architectural work. Not you necessarily. Know, the archi- they may, some not, of them are. Not, but not to the extent that people who want to make a knife are. Oh yeah, that's correct. You're correct. You know, and it's what's interesting is is that now. I mean, people didn't really know about pattern welding steel. You know, people as popular as pattern welded steel is now, I don't think it's ever been as popular globally because people are able to see it more. Right. The, the ease of seeing it, and it's easily digested, and you're able to kind of, like, get a lot of information out, you know, that's fascinating than you are with social media. Right. You know what I, What what kind of strikes me as you're talking a little bit is um, – you know, back in the day, let's just say that a blacksmith did know how to pattern weld. And he lived in a small town, and he made these, you know, pattern welded knives or whatever. But he didn't share his technique because that was his technique. Right. Right? So he safeguarded it. And people would try, you know, to figure it out, but he was the one. But now it seems like everybody shares kind of everything, and if you can do it better than me, great, but if not also great it's the 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 sharing of information has always been interesting because i actually worked in a metal shop not too long ago where there was a welder there who would not teach other people how to weld interesting and it was because he was afraid he was gonna lose his job sure 
Sure. And I think that there, I think that there are there are eons of of that being part of the situation. I mean, if you were, I mean, I talk. It's interesting because I'm able to talk to a lot of different people with for, with a lot of different experiences in history. And I talked to Alex Pohl, and his interest. It's interesting because he when he talks about being a blacksmith, he's talk, he talks about the history of it back in the day where you were a journeyman and you would travel around and you had to you had to work with guilds and you you weren't allowed to make money. And then it was what was interesting was was how rigorous it was to become a blacksmith sure and now like these guys who can't swing a hammer are making beautiful you know mosaic pattern damascus right knives yeah and it, the technique has changed the delivery systems change exactly and which i find it to be fascinating and ultimately you know it's controversial because you know there are a lot of people who say well you shouldn't do it like that you should do it like that i personally feel like the more that's out there the better it is. Right. No, I agree because, with that. Because the architectural stuff is tough. You know, the architect, I think about the architectural stuff a lot because when I was at the Center for Metal Arts back in the day, you know, it was tied to fine architectural metalsmiths and we were running a, a shop. Um, uh, you know, we were doing railings. We were doing railings and grills and we're doing stuff for architecture. Sure. And the problem was, and this is something I'll never forget, is when we, we had Uri Hoffi was teaching, he would sit down and talk to the students and we'd say, well, what's the role of the modern day blacksmith? Because now construction isn't using as much uh, forged iron. Right. Like they're not, ra- you know, forged iron railings don't really fit within the confines of architectural, you know, nuance now. I mean, you're guys like uh, Matt Harris who's doing beautiful stuff, and it's, you know, there are guys, I'm not saying it isn't happening, but it's like to the level that it used to be, where do we fit in as blacksmiths? I mean, people aren't making fire escapes anymore. Like, I thought at one point, I was like, yeah, you could be in the fire escape business. You could make, you know, beautiful sculptural fire escapes. Well, they don't use fire escapes anymore, you know? So right. what's interesting is is the how you pivot to what's going on now. Yeah, uh, I, I agree that it is interesting. And I think the, the other thing to kind of maybe analyze is, you know, what part of the industry, like... The knife makers, yeah, you're saying there's a lot of knife makers, but how many of those knife makers are actually professional knife makers that know what they're doing? You know, I, I think that that kind of doesn't even matter okay. because I think I believe that my opinion of I think about knife making a lot because I mean I wasn't a knife maker to begin with. I mean I was a blacksmith, and then all of a sudden I helped teach a class, and I was just like I can do this. And it was for me. I think that the knife is interesting because. Number one, you're not schlepping, you know, 150 pound bars of steel to get a knife into your shop. Sure. You know, you're, 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 you're all of a sudden your load is much smaller. The other thing is, is there's something very intimate about knives, like hand tools in general, when you're fabricating hand tools, any of any type, especially something that you can hold and lift, it becomes more intimate for the buyer and the consumer and the, you know, person who's interested in it. But it also becomes a little bit more approachable for the maker. So I think like culinary knives or knives in general are very, very approachable for someone getting into making things that work. Right. It's, it's a very low, it's a low cost of entry to the most part to be a knife maker. You know, obviously it's going to a couple grand for like, you know, the gear and stuff like that. But it, that's a pretty low, that's a pretty low threshold to be able to make a knife. I Meaning there's not, not a lot of specialty tools necessary to make a kitchen knife i mean you don't ha- i mean most people don't start out forging most people do stock removal right so you can buy the steel 
If you have an, uh, uh, you have to, you know, obviously you can use a, some people start out using a forge. You can get a forge for cheap to, to heat treat a knife and you need a grinder, but people make it happen with files and there are videos of guys making knives with very minimum tools. Sure. I mean, though, it's a very low cost of entry and once you get into it, then all of a sudden you start to build up and up and up. But I think that in regards to, I mean, the interesting thing is, is most people feel that, you know, they're learning, you know, good at YouTube university. Right. And, you know, you can really, you can really, most people can make it happen. I mean, the cla- I mean, in terms of being a knife maker, I've only taken classes. I've taken a class with Nick, Nick Angers, and I've taken a class with Aaron Wilburn, and that's it. I mean, that's the only formal classes I've ever taken on knife making. Right. So, so it's like, does that make me not a professional knife maker? Because I haven't taken formal classes. I haven't gone, I'm not... I'm not. I haven't like apprenticed under someone. Well, what, you know? what is the definition of a professional knife maker? Frankly, I don't know, and 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 I I I am very hesitant to be in a position of passing judgment on anybody. Right. You know, it's like my my position in general always is if you stand behind your work, that's enough. You know, like do the best you can at the time, and you stand behind your work. And if someone doesn't like it, you you take care of them. Sure. I mean that to me is like the that's the that's the the lowest tier of being a professional sure you know? would the american bladesmith society be the one that dictated whether a person could be considered a professional bladesmith or not the that's an interesting that's an interesting point because the american bladesmith society is really important because what they're doing is that they're they're perpetuating a level of fitness and a level of integrity that has been passed down for generations. Right. They don't really do the whole, you can do this, but you can't do this. But what they do is, is they give you this, if you pass the journeyman Smith and then you pass the master Smith, you're getting the stamp of approval that your work passes the judge, the judgment of these master bladesmiths who are, who are perpetuating. uh, When I say perpetuating, I mean like they're holding this set of values that they've always had and you're having a level of, of fit and finish that's within the confines of their expertise. Right. It's great. But I mean, they're not the ones who are going to say, you know, you're not allowed to do this. Right. And I mean, back in the day, you'd have guilds that wouldn't allow people to do certain things. Sure. You know, I think in today's world, if your profession is being a bladesmith, then you could likely be called a professional bladesmith. Here's what's more interesting. What's more interesting is the consumers are less, I mean, they're far more educated than they used to be. Sure. But consumers and brokers and gallerists and all these people are less likely to have a firm understanding of what professional is, professionalism is because usually they aren't. They haven't done it before. Right. You know, your experts, your experts are knife makers, like other knife makers who know what something's supposed to look like because they've seen it, the minor details. They're more of an expert than retailers or, you know, knife sharpeners for the most part. Right. So it's like it's it's interesting because like there are there are things that knife makers focus on that a customer would never even think to look at. Right. Like wouldn't even cross their mind. Sure, sure. I I wonder if if uh society is uh, moving more away from like a government type platform and, and more to the individual, meaning, you, you know, instead of it being a big association, it's more about the individual. And if you're one that desires uh, a custom knife, 
then you utilize the tools at hand, i.e., you know, the internet, YouTube, and all that, to identify who the professional may be, and then you can go see them and see their quality in in person instead of, you know, ordering something out of a catalog that you'd never seen before, that you don't really right. know. I think that this is what's interesting is is the question I've been asking everybody for years is what's the role of the modern day blacksmith? And I'm now, after asking that a million times and talking to people, I really believe that it's to carry on what this craft is and to kind of educate the people at large. Like, here's a good example. I had a couple of years ago, we were having, uh, I got approached by a school and this, this student wanted to be an intern for me. And that was going to be part of his senior class. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. I've had interns before. I was an intern. I believe in internship. Like I loved when I was an intern, it was really helpful to me when I was a sculptor and stuff like that. So I got a call from the school. I said, yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. And then they wanted to know what I do. And the next thing you know, I had to take a phone call with an insurance company, their school's insurance company. Cause obviously I said to them, I'm like, look, if something happens, to this kid, you know, he's, you know, you're a student, you know, you're, right. you're responsible for, you're responsible for him. You can't, you, you know, I just want you to know this is a metal shop, you know? So I got on, I got, had a phone call with the insurance company and the insurance person was just like, well, what do you do? And you're a knife maker. Oh my God. And then there was this, <laughs> there was this, no, I'm telling you, this woman felt like in her mind, what she pictured what happened in the knife shop was we were standing in like a circus tent with like balloons in our teeth, throwing <laughs> knives at each other. I mean, it was, I'm not kidding. Like I had to like, there was this huge lack of, of understanding of sure. any kind of metal work. Sure. And I told, I even explained to him like, look, you know what the funny thing is, is my knives will not be sharp until the, until an hour before they're shipped. Wow. Because I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of dropping them. Sure. I'm afraid of dropping them and I have to repair them. So like I said, th- these are the things that you have to worry about, but, it's, but the, it was the misconception of what you know, they're they're my my kids' teachers think that I'm a knife maker that I that I'm like a mugger or something, right? You know that like I'm gonna like I'm like a robber or a thief or something like that because I make knives or I know how to use knives. You know, it's it's there's this very common misconception in regards to how things are made and what things are supposed to be. I still to this day, I had a, a guy who bought a knife for me. And he was selling it on eBay, and he just started saying, I'm a master bladesmith, and he's just making all this stuff up because he set, thought it sounded good. Did he buy it to resell it? No. It was something happened, and oh. he just wanted to he just wanted to get rid of it and, and for whatever reason. And, you know, so I'm with you. You buy something, and you want to resell it. Go ahead. But it was I had to send him a message saying, well, there's some, there's some inaccuracies here. I just wanted to make sure because all of a sudden my name's involved. I, I'm not a master bladesmith, and this was wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, and I'm not going to help you sell it. But at the same time, it's like there is this, there's still, I think the idea is, is that metal workers now really do need to educate the pop, the, the public in regards to what these things are used for. Sure. Sure. So, you, you yeah, that some people just. Well, they have no idea. They, people, they have no so idea and people, they're just, they're just using words, look, you know. To, do you ever look at a guy's hands and judge them immediately? Every day. Me too. Every freaking day, Me all too. day long. Me too. Like if they're too soft or they're too little or they're like totally. very manicured or you can tell that this person's never held a screwdriver, you've, you've really immediately judged them. Totally. But what does that mean? I mean, th- to me it means you want to know if they're like in the club or not, right? It's not like, oh, you're a keyboard jockey, you know, you sit at behind a desk all day and you're a pussy, you couldn't even shoot a bow and arrow. You know, it's more like I wonder what they – 
I wonder what that guy does. Like, look at those hands. They're unbelievable. I wonder what he makes. I wonder, you know, what his hobby is. I I look at people's hands like I look at people's shopping carts. Like when I look at when I'm in the supermarket, and I look in their shopping totally, carts. Totally, totally. Super judgment, monster judgment. Yeah. If you got like ten lean cuisines and diet coke, you're out. I mean, it's like there's just there's no way. That's why but you hate hands, running into one of your friends at the grocery store because then they learn more about you than you probably want them to know. Can I tell you that I had to move? I we had to move grocery stores. <laughs> I had to go to a grocery store that's 20 minutes out of my way because I was tired of bumping into people. Are you serious? Yeah, like, I'm not kidding. It's like I this is the one place I know that I will not bump in anyone. I have to talk to. Them. Yeah, like oh, that you're on a, a carb problem. diet. All carb diet, huh? Oh, you look very. Oh wow, you very healthy. Oh, oh wow, is that say? ice yeah. cream you um, have there, Jeff? Yeah, mm. It was, but it was like it was like it became to the point where at my it was it was costing me. An hour because I'd bump into ten people in the aisles. We'd have to chit chat. Next thing you know, I was just like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. I can't do this. Anymore. You know what I love to do is stop at Whole Foods on the way home from my shop. Just filthy, oh, yeah. dirty. Yeah. Like because like people look at you like like you're dirtier than any repair person that would be in that shop. You know, fixing a refrigerator would be right, right so, by a mile. You know, like. Or, or go to like a kid's soccer practice where all the other moms and dads have like you know they they're they're frumpy you know and then there's me that's like just just filthy. It's 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 interesting that you say that. I want to get back to the hands thing, but it is interesting you say that because I once went to a uh, teachers a school teacher meeting. Oh wow, yeah, from the shop when my kid was in third grade. And I was filthy. I but I, I was late. Something happened. I was filthy, and I smelled terrible. And I was covered in tattoos and dirt, and you know, black shirt, sure. and black pants, and stuff like that. And I had my arms crossed. And the teacher said to my wife later, "Your husband doesn't look very happy. Is he mad? Did, he, did I do something wrong?" Yeah, he's. My, my, my wife's just like, "No, he's just fucking filthy. Yeah. He's got like he's he's got like dirt for eyebrows that are <laughs> looking like he's frowning. <laughs> like, no, he's perfectly fine. Relax." She just but assumes like, that you're like, miserable. Yeah, no, but it was like my dirt eyebrows looked like I was frowning. Yeah. So I had to like, you know, I had to change it. But in regards to the hands, I always think it's a it's it's when you see these guys with these like very thin, you know, pristine fingers and just like I almost think of it more like is this person have does she does he, this person have the willingness to do something, you know? Yeah. And it's that's what it is to me. It's like not like it's just it's just the fact that you're just like, you know, whatever you're doing whatever you're doing. And but it's is more of a willingness of wanting to kind of get your hands dirty. Totally, I I like that philosophy, but I think I judge maybe a little heavier and and just want to know like what the heck they do or don't do. I once knew I worked with somebody who's was the we were in a metal shop and this woman said, "Oh, my husband, he won't even turn a screw in the house." Yeah, and it was like this, and it was almost like this. It was almost like he was. She was saying it's all these welders. It was almost like this belittling. I like to think of it as like this poor fucking guy. Right. I think if his wife knows, even if his wife knows that he can't turn a screw, it was just like it's a sad situation. But but maybe he brings, didn't want to, you know. So no, maybe he didn't want to. That, so no. for me, at my house, we have a handyman because when I go home, I don't want to fix something that's broken. Right. I have zero yeah. desire. I don't blame you. So we have a handyman, and if something needs to be happening, my wife calls him up, comes over, whatever, done. That's I, – I want a handyman. 
I, I actually redid our kitchen a number of years ago, and my wife can't get me to do anything anymore. Totally. That was like, that was no like, chance. I've destroyed me. It was like, we, we'll pay. Let's pay. Yeah. I'd rather pay now. I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. I, I, it's, but the willingness is over. My hands are disgusting, but the willingness is completely over to do that kind of stuff, which kind of brings me back to the idea of how anvils were marketed and sold. I always wonder about, what I wonder is, is a lot of times, just talking to other people, blacksmiths and stuff like that. When you look at, especially in the Northeast, I'm just referring to the Northeast, when you're looking at old anvils, generally speaking, you're seeing stuff more frequent that's under 200 pounds. And I'm sorry, when I say more frequent, I'm like, you know, you know, at a yard sale or at an antique shop or the ones that under 200 pounds are a lot more, you know, it seems as though those are much more frequently seen. Totally. And it, and I would imagine, and then we're talking to Jesse, Jesse was referring to the Richard Postman book, Anvils of America, and he was saying a lot of it's because of how things were shipped, because it was easier to ship these smaller, you know, in England, it was easier to put them on the the horses and the, in the, in the, in the ferries and stuff like that. I also felt like it was a, it was a marketing tactic to sell to farmers and stuff because they could move it around. Totally. Yeah. If you were, if you were, uh, back in the day needing an anvil for a plowshare or whatever it may be on your farm, you'd likely get one that you could move easily in a wagon. Right. Right. Uh, the professional blacksmiths, the you know, the professionals were the ones that had the big ones. Really, more the industrial forging shops, right? So that's why you don't find many of the big ones, and that's why they're so expensive. You know, you you have an average price per pound that goes up substantially when you get over five hundred pounds. Do you think anvil manufacturers were targeting uh, the non-professional blacksmiths? No, so I think uh, I think it, the non-professional blacksmiths. Mm. Well, like when I say like when you're saying like non-professional blacksmiths is in like guys who you know guys who forge all day long. They're in a blacksmith shop. They're doing architectural stuff or tool making or stuff like that. Do you think that they were? Do you think that they got to the point where they thought, all right, we've sold enough three hundred pounders, and now we need to kind of focus on guys on their farms who might want these? I'm sure that was thought about, but I also would assume that. You know, just like in every, probably almost every home in today's world, there's a cordless screw gun. Right. You know, it's just one of those tools of necessity, if you will. And back in the day, the anvil was a tool of necessity for numerous things. The wind blew the screen door open and the hinge bent on the door frame. You know, you got to take it off and flatten it. Uh, You need a gate latch because birth of the cow's udders were infected and she was pissed off and she kicked the gate open. But there must have been a point. Now, we think about like how hard it was back in the day to be a blacksmith and with the guilds and stuff like that. There must have been this turning point in in the marketing and sales of anvils where they were just like, well, I know we're supposed to only sell to certain people, but the guy with the gate needs an anvil. Maybe we should be selling them. Because it also makes me think about like how power hammers were starting to be sold. Like, sure. You know, I mean, they weren't all just, you know, 10,000 pound steam hammers they were you know the 25 pound little giant was something that was marketed toward i mean i would assume that the company little giant even when they created the name were marketing it to the masses yeah likely so um interestingly enough i don't know the origin of the name little giant i i I mean i know a lot about the history of the company but that's one thing i kind of need to or i'm at least curious about it 
Because that's like a name that's like if you're, if you're talking to if you I mean that's like a sales pitch name. Sure. That's like a boom bang. You know this it captures exactly what this business is all about. Right. Where this is the little giant. So you don't need to market the little giant to you know a metal you know yeah. to the Samuel Yellen show. It's a small platform with a lot of power. Right. So you're so there at some point the blacksmith is trying to kind of focus more of the tools that they're making towards non-professional blacksmiths. Sure. Sure. Yeah, that and I was just thinking too like the non-professional blacksmith where would where would they learn about right the anvil or the idea of all this stuff. And probably like, you know, going into town going to the trading post, you know, like you would have a hardware store, the display anvils or something that sells. So the hardware store, the, the trading post owner, co-op owner has a display of anvils, vices and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, people put two and two together. Oh, I, I know I was paying the local, you know, in town blacksmith to do this and that. Well, hell I can get an anvil and a couple of things and do it myself. It'd be fun. So maybe it's based around just interests. Do you think that this is one of the factors of why most old anvils are so beaten to shit? Because hmm. like, I got a Peter Wright. I got a Peter Wright. I talked to you about this last time. I got a Peter Wright number uh, last year or something like that. Uh, uh, not, uh, someone in town got it from, funny enough, the you ever heard of the, there was an old puppeteer name. It was Sherry Lewis, and she had a, she had a, um, she had a sock puppet called Lamb Chop. Okay. Well, the person who made the lamb chop had an anvil. Right. And then this is, I call this Peter Wright lamb chop because this was the, the from the sculptor who made the sock puppet lamb chop. Now, when I, I took a, when I cleaned it up and took a look at it, there was a tons of chisel marks all over the sides, all, I mean, covering, covering, the, without exception of the face, it was chisel marks all over Right. It. And I called up Jesse and I said, well, what do you think that is? And Jesse said, well, a lot of chisel makers were testing their chisels on the sides of the anvil because the anvils were wrought iron and if you, if you could gouge into the the side of the anvil with the chisel you'd know it was hard yeah it was like a rockwell testing hardness right apparatus and but you know we we, we people yeah, find the anvils and the corners are all beat up beat the shit and and they're, everything's like they, they're swaying and they're, everything's beaten up do you think this is because most people who bought these anvils didn't know what the fuck they were doing? I think that's one of the factors, but also, you know, anvils were made in different ways. Some cast, some forged, some wrought iron, some tool steel. Some, you know, there's so many variables that are that are uh, you could contribute, you know, usage to. And of course, also, you know, people not hitting them correctly and them being hit when they're really, really cold and cracking. I mean, there's an, a lot of lot of variables to that but yeah i think you could say one of those factors is you know the possibility that the non-professional blacksmith was using but i don't think that would be like the one but it it seems like it could i mean we're obviously we're just kind of speculating but it it, it seems as though it could coincide with this this wave of trying to sell and create and and create a market for blacksmith anvils tools and stuff like that yeah yeah totally totally it's all about supply and demand interest i mean i mean he, like you like i said i mean jesse had a uh 25 pound little giant which is 
it's a, it feels like a small hammer. It doesn't feel like an industrial hammer. Right. Like it's very approachable. I mean, you're almost, you know, it's, it's just over six feet tall. When I, when I saw, I saw it in pictures and when I saw it in the shop, I was just like, this is kind of small. Right. And it, it hit very small. I mean, you obviously for forging out like blades, it was great and stuff like that. But I mean, like you couldn't make a lot of, you couldn't forge out giant billets of anything with it. I mean, it was really, so it makes me wonder if there was this growth how do we create, how do we kind of promote blacksmithing and how do we do it? And, and then how do we make tools that anybody could have? Uh, I think you promote it by what it's, what is happening now. When you look at the growth of um, blacksmithing, forging, bladesmithing, uh, since like Instagram was created, I mean, it's grown leaps and bounds just in that time frame alone. So I think just with the evolution of it, it's gonna, it has, it has no potential to slow down. If it makes, I think that this is a, a great bellwether for the whole thing. Is that I believe that this year, this past year, was the biggest class of uh, ABS apprentices um, uh, testing to be journeyman smith. Usually they would be like ten or fifteen right. maximum. This year was eighty. Oh wow. 80, 80, and then it dropped down to like 60-something or something like that, but it was like, it was by a mile more, and I believe that, and they're younger guys, these are a lot of guys in their 30s and under, and I believe, and it's not easy to become a, it's not easy to test for a journeyman smith, because you, right off the bat, you need to be a member in good standing right. for three years, then you have to do a performance test with a master bladesmith, where they bend it, and they chop the wood, and then they bend it. I and, think that contest, or that that is the most interesting thing that they do to all those knives. Tell me. I just, why do you say that? It's just bizarre to watch someone take something that is so nice and they've spent so much time on and literally try to destroy it. <laughs> well, that's the most interesting part. Well, the, the choppers don't have to the choppers don't have to be the what they do the bend it. It doesn't have to be ornate. Right. Like, okay. But it, but what's what interesting is is I mean the interesting part is is it's it's does this person have the complete mastery to make the edge hard and make the spine soft enough to bend and hold the bend without the edge breaking or chipping right you know or, or breaking I mean it is a, it is it is a terrific you know litmus test for whether or not they're doing what they're supposed to be doing how do you make a knife that's strong and flexible but also it's sharp enough to hold an edge it'll hold an edge right and that i mean that in and of itself is is fascinating and the the thing is is like now you're seeing what i'm what i'm getting at is if you were to look at people testing for journeyman smith and seeing people testing and you know following these people like will stelter and all these guys who are you know matt stagmer and who people who are being watched then they're saying to themselves, I can do this too. But what's interesting is, is I believe that this is, these are all forge and fire, the forge and fire generation. Because the forge and fire, you know, whether or not you like it or not, it doesn't really matter. What it has done is it makes people try to strive for a degree. Seeing anvil, seeing representation of forging, it's been, you know, you can't knock it. I mean, that's been the most, I mean, that's the most people seeing people forging on the television. Oh yeah, ever. By by, by leap and by leaps and bounds. Yeah. And now you're seeing that generation who grew up with it who are starting to take it seriously. Right. I love it. I do too. I think I it's mean, great. I think it's, it's really I'm, good. 
I believe that this is the golden age for, of blacksmithing because more people are seeing it. And more people are watching, instead of watching, you know, seeing a book, Anvils in America is outstanding. Right. But, I mean, you get to watch, you can watch a video of a guy striking. Or even Neil Moore. you can watch a video of him s- slamming out a knife. You like know, a wild man. Forge- like a legit like a fo- wild but you man. See, you see him working hard, you know, or you're seeing people using power hammers and you're seeing people using hydraulic presses and you're, you're, you're seeing more representation of what was what did happen and what happens now and I think that's important to be honest with you because that's the role of the modern day blacksmiths is I feel like it needs to keep bees kept alive because there's all this trick in the book I mean blacksmithing I mean when they put Jesus up they didn't put him up with zip ties right you know a blacksmith made them nails yeah and you know history was built on by the blacksmith totally I don't know. I'm getting crazy. No, I think it's good. I th- listen. I think it's it's not going to go away. There's too much exposure now for it to go away, right? There there may be ebbs and flows with interest levels, you know, as time goes on. But the the uh, the DIY to professional, you know, blacksmith is not going away. I just wish there was a little bit more education. That would that well, what would be that my own. Like? I don't know, but I mean, I see. I make jokes, and I refer to some people as flappers, slappers. I see some people slapping, and and it and it and it hurts me. It hurts me a little bit when I see how people forge. Sometimes, and it's like the simple things, like when you, they're they put their steel on the on the anvil, and they're hitting all over the place, as opposed to drawing back the way you would use a power hammer. Like I try to see forging with a power hammer and forging on an anvil with a hand hammer the same like sure you on a power hammer you're, you're you're the managing hand and you're drawing the material back and then this and then the hammer is in one hitting in one place right and when you're forging on an anvil you should be doing the same thing like that's the methodology where the hammer stays the same and then you're moving the material to to work with the hammer obviously it doesn't work that kind of time, control I mean, though general. is not just about education that's about muscle memory and repetition and time spent doing that but but at the same time it's like you it's bad habits that are not being addressed it's like if you go to a gym you've never been to a gym before and then you just start doing the weights without any guidance sure like you you don't pick up you don't pick up good habits right like that's the only thing to me and it's like and then you see the posts and people have the hammer in their hands and their arms are crossed and they're you know like you know a little dirty and then they're standing or sitting on an anvil listening to you know pearl jam right and it's like and all of a sudden it's like you know i don't know so the, yeah it, it is I, I i love the education fact what i was thinking when you were talking then is about youtube it seems like every time i want to go on youtube to like google specifically how to do something it's not possible to find it. Sometimes, sometimes it's hard. I mean, I, I, I attribute, I mean, my knife making, if, if it wasn't for Aaron Goff, Goff Customs, and Michael Trolsky, their videos were very, very well put together and gave me a lot of insight into how it's done. Right. There are guys who are doing a really, really high-level great job on right. it. Right. You know, and it's like, but then if you don't have the information at hand... How do you discern whether this is good or that's good? You know? Mm, yeah. It's tough. It's tough. But, I mean, at the same time, it's like, you know, I talk to a lot of people who who would love to take a class, but it's either it's too expensive or they don't have the time. Or, you know, t- to teaching class, you know, being having someone to take a week off work to, take a, to teach a class, to take a class, 
is a big ask. Right. You know, and then you can kind of, you know, maybe you can do a video, get an online video. Nick Rossi did a great online video. Jason Knight did a on- great online video with Steve Schwarzer. Those are really, they're easy to do, and it's not a huge commitment of your time. And then maybe you can kind of grow with that. But it's t- the whole thing's tough. But, I mean, I believe that now, like here's a perfect example is, is Richard Postman. He, hadn't, he couldn't even go in the library and find out this stuff. Right. He had to make it in the 80s. In the 80s. Right. It's crazy. And now we can, you know, you have all of YouTube and you have Instagram and you can watch all these guys who are like rocketing into into Instagram views because they're showing something that's interesting, which always has been. Right. But has never been captured that way. Yeah, the people that really can, uh, can put out a good video are the ones that are excelling. It's what's interesting is is like people are people are still only want a little bit. They don't want to sit down for three hours worth. Of, I remember there was a there's a great video by the way. There's a great online video of um, Lin Ray forging a uh, his X-ray knife, his blacksmith knife, which I think that, in my opinion, and I've talked to Lin Ray and I've interviewed him, he's probably the most innovative bladesmith in terms of blacksmithing to bladesmithing and he his i don't know if you're familiar with his work no but he he's a he was a master bladesmith and then what he did was he he was he became the resident bladesmith at this arkansas blacksmith museum that was known for the area was known for where the bowie knife was created oh wow yeah so they wanted him to be the resident blacksmith he a resident black uh bladesmith blacksmith and he you know it's a lot of big responsibility you're in Arkansas. You're a master bladesmith and you're kind of like repping this incredibly historic area. So he decides to go to, um, he decides to go to this famous blacksmith whose name I just forgot. He's, uh, he's really very, very important right now. And I'm going to get it back in a second. So don't start. He's going to kill you, dude. No, this is the guy he's, he's, he was on PBS for years. His name's on the tip of my tongue. Oh, Bob Ross. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, not Bob Ross. Mm. But uh, but he's he's on this old house a lot, and he oh, was like, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, you know, you kind of got about. like a almost a mullet. No, he doesn't have a mullet. <laughs> it, I'm gonna I'm gonna come up with it in a second. Sure. Uh, but so basically, so what happened was was he went to it was uh, uh it was Peter Ross. That's who it was. Peter Ross. God damn. Peter Ross. You I, you were right with the Ross. Bob Ross was close. It was Peter Ross. Bob. Peter Ross was considered one of the great uh, Amer- current American blacksmiths focusing on colonial work. He does he does he teaches classes at CMA where they do boxed forged box jaw tongs and they're ama- I mean he's really amazing. So so Lynn goes to see Peter Ross. He Lynn's got this t- this time and energy as a bladesmith and he goes to see work for a blacksmith just to get the information right he it changed his whole idea in regards to knife making because he started to see how you forge out this and forge out that and then now the x-ray knife is a blacksmith's knife because he used these blacksmithing tenets in order to kind of create it and it was this incredible uh incredible it's it's the most innovative i think he's one of the most innovative knife makers living today just in terms of the simplicity and the use right. of bladesmithing and blacksmithing. Right. Hey, hold on two and seconds, okay? Go cool. ahead. Nope. With that said, guys, we're here with Alex Andrew Alexander. We don't. I mean, this these things happen sometimes, and uh, sometimes, sometimes we have to make a pause. But that's okay, guys. So I'm going to be at Maker Camp. I'm back. Uh, in a, 
Oh, there he's back. Thank God. I have to do, I've, I've done a good job with it in the past, but you're you're very good. Um, in regard, I mean, I was talking about Lynn Ray's kind of, I don't know, even know where I was going with the whole thing. We were talking was, about, like, p- education and, and you know, how people learn. And you were saying that well, his videos were really good. So, ah, perfect. So, so Lynn Ray has a video out on how he forges one of his x-ray knives. It's in real time. It's a two-hour-long video. Oh, Lord. It's, but it's like, it's, he does every, I mean, you can watch the whole thing, but at the same time, it's like, and it's really interesting, especially if you're learning how to make, and he's in South Africa and he's learning how to, if you're learning, if you want to learn the little technical details, it's not edited at all. So it's in real time. It's like two hours long. I watched it. It was fascinating, but you know, between heats, it's like, what are you going to, you know, you're waiting around and it's like, you know, it is kind of like tough. Sure. I think it's very, I think that the educational thing is going to be the next big thing because you know back in the day i mean when they when those guys had their the little giants in their in their farm for plowshares how are they learning how to use these things yeah i think that's where just good old redneck ingenuity came into play <laughs> I think that's right. the, that's where hold right. my beer like got created <laughs> Hey, hey, but i mean hey, bobby good old give, give me that plug it in shit and hold back hold my beer how are they even running these things? Line shaft. Mules running around in the courtyard with a thing tied around their neck. I mean. Are you kidding? No, I mean, that's, that is not true. It's just kind of being funny, but. I know, but I mean, how are they running these? How are they running their little giants out of their farms? Yeah, so hit and miss engines. What's that? That's uh, like a, uh, some people call, it, call them Johnny Poppers or uh, single lungers. They're the old, uh, you know, flywheel driven gas engines. They're really, really simple, and they're – you'll have to look them up. They're really fun. I have several of them. They're, they, uh, they hit once, meaning they, they fire, and then they miss 10 times. So it's hit, and then they spin 10 times before they hit again. Right. It's, it's a fascinating thing. But, so they would put pulleys on the, on the flywheels of these hit-and-miss engines. All right, I have to stop this really quick. I'm really sorry to do yeah. this, but for some reason, uh, it's it's cancel. It's stopping the the tricast is canceling out. We've run out of time. Oh, so I'm gonna what I'm gonna try to do is I'm gonna figure something out and give you, and, and we're gonna finish this off in five minutes. Okay. If we don't, Andrew, uh, Andrew I'm sorry. I'm just got a message saying you run out of recording time when you're cast account. Sure. Craig Craig needs to pay uh, for the maximum recording. This link will automatically stop in five minutes. Well, let's just talk for the next five minutes. So what's so? You were talking about Johnny Poppers. I'm sorry about this. No, I don't no know why the fuck. Johnny Poppers popping Johnny's. What's next for Alec, Andrew Alexander? I'm going to try to figure this out. We're going to try to get this thing back on. But uh, what's next? You for know, you? next for me is to continue on what I've always done, which is to share the love of uh, my interests, to share my knowledge, to share uh, the machines that I find along the way with everybody, whether that's just by a video or by, you know, selling something, you know, making the connection, getting that, that machine to the people that want to make some stuff. And do you, is this, this is still, you still love it? Dude, I love it so much. It's crazy. It, it, Yes. I mean, when, when you will take time away and you'll fly to an event just so you can go be around people that are like-minded, you know, and you love that, you're passionate about it, when you leave, you're like, I can't wait for the next year. That, that's when you know you're, you're, 
your mind is fully embraced. Wow. Well, anything coming up that's going to be exciting for you? Or I got uh, there's always lots of things coming up. Um, I'm going to uh, be doing a little bit more traveling uh, this upcoming year, and a lot of it's not going to be in the United States. So hopefully there'll be some good stories that get generated from that. Um, but yeah, I'm just on the quest to keep these things in motion. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate everything you're doing. This was a great conversation. It went short, and I'm sorry. No worries. But I'm going to definitely have you back. I'm definitely going to have you back, and we have more to cover in in this upcoming conversation in regards to the future of Black Yeah, I feel like we were just warming up there. We were warming up at this goddamn, goddamn, these guys. I tell you what, I hate podcasting because of the technical problems. Sure. The technical problems, nothing is worse. And, and it drives me crazy and it makes me want to stop doing this, but I'm not going to stop. Instead, I'm going to have you back on uh, sooner rather than later. And we're going to keep the ball rolling. All right, brother. All right. That sounds great. Guys, listen, I want you to follow Andrew Alexander. You already do. Shop Blacksmith Tools on Instagram. Follow whatever he's doing. And uh, listen to uh, follow us on Instagram. That's the Full Blast Podcast to get uh, you know to find out what's going on. And this is probably going to happen often because the technical problems always seem to have problems with me, and I resent it intensely. And I appreciate Andrew Alexander so much. You're such an interesting guy, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you sometime. All right, brother. Thank you. I appreciate you, dude. You are the man. You are the Likewise. man. And I'm very, very sorry for this, and I will figure it out for next time. Okay? All right, brother. Catch you. You're the man. All right, guys. We will see you next week. Hey, guys. That was annoying. And I'll tell you why it was annoying. It was annoying because I was really, really excited to speak with Andrew Alexander. Um, and I'll tell you what happens. When we do these podcasts, um, we try to keep it as simple as possible, as in no editing. We want to make it sound as good as possible. We want it to sound like it's a professional recording and that we care and stuff like that. And I really, I'm really conscious of how it sounds. And I want to make sure that, you know, my guest is comfortable. And I want to make sure that I'm comfortable having this kind of interesting conversation. What happens is, is these technical problems come up. And it's just very deflating. And and I, what happened was out of our control, out of Craig's control, out of my control, it was just like the cycling of how these goddamn uh, podcasting services are, are used. So with that said, I, w- I really wanted to go a lot longer. I had a lot more to say. Andrew, Andrew had a lot more to say. I think that, I think there was a lot was taken away. Um, but I'll tell you, it is frustrating. It's frustrating because, you know, I make a lot of jokes. Oh, at P.S., I want to address a couple of things. So I make a lot of jokes that uh, I refer to people as podcasters who don't, you know, do a professional job or whatever as flea bags. I got to tell you, I got to make it, I got to make a funny story. So, um, you know, I want this to be a good podcast and I'm really interested in having, you know, I understand how podcasts are meant to be. I'm keeping you company. I, I knew that that's what it was when I was younger and I was alone or I was by myself or I needed someone to like talk to or talk, you know, hear from. And I believe that podcasting in general is this, you know, I feel like it's a duty. That's why I really do go out of my way to make sure that uh, 
full blast and I make sure, you know, I talk with Craig and Mareko and I want to make sure that we're, we're covering because I know that I know that there are, and I know people are just like, that's a podcast. What's the big deal? Well, I understand. And I get a lot of messages from people who say that this is something important to us because, you know, I'm alone or I'll drive, I'll get a long drive away from my family or, you know, this is something to kind of keep my spirits up or, you know, maybe things are, you know, I've got a lot of, I've had a lot of uh, messages from people who are in kind of not in the best positions and a lot of positions. And I understand the importance of hearing someone's voice that you feel familiar with and then you get to learn about them and you get to do all this stuff. And I, and I appreciate it. And I, I appreciate it from uh, the standpoint of when I was younger and what I needed when I needed companionship or friendship or I needed something to keep me occupied. So I understood that this was something that, you know, the importance of it. And I hated it when someone was on vacation. Like, I remember, it wasn't uh, after, after uh, in the beginning of the pandemic. I remember, I listened to Howard Stern. I think he's still great. I enjoy, I learned so much from him in regards to uh, the interviewing style. I remember when he went, he had, they had, couldn't go back into the building, you know, or whatever. And they had to, and they were out for a couple weeks. And I remember how important it was when he came back. And I remember the importance of someone being there. And it was, it was, it brought me back. There were also days when I was younger and I was alone. I was a latchkey kid. I was alone. And, and the, there was something about listening to Scott Shannon in the morning or Don Imus or Howard Stern or Opie and Anthony that was like, you don't feel like you're alone. So that's that's number one. Number two is is I fucking hate the technical parts of this podcast. I hate it when the sound isn't great. I hate it when there is problems with the recording. Once in a while these, you know, there'll be some sort of lapse and somebody's, you know, maybe their Chromebook isn't maybe their Chrome isn't up to date and then there's like, you know, there's all these little things that and then there's like uh it sounds like we're interrupting each other. There was a couple episodes of Knife Talk where we are talking over each other. And it sounds as if we don't even give we're not even listening to each other. We're just yammering on and talking at each other. And it wasn't the case. It was, there was like a lag in one of our audios and it would put everything off sync and it would, it would drive me crazy to the point where I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. There was one episode recently where there were a couple episodes of Full Blast where I was so disappointed in how it turned out that I just didn't even want to do it anymore. Well, I think it was, you know, when I had, um, when I had Ben, uh, no, when I had uh, Matt Stagmer, uh, James Fleming, Will Stelter, and and Nick Nick Rossi, and there was some audio thing that I couldn't hear, and then when it came together, I was so deflated for so long that I was just like, you know what, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. And I was just like, all right, just don't listen, think about it anymore, and we'll just keep going. And it's the same thing. We had an episode of Knife Talk where Mareko's audio, and it was really nothing to do with us, and it just it ruined the flow, and it ruined the whole thing, and it just kind of bummed me out. So with that said, I'm really f- sorry for these technical problems, and, and I can no longer you know, say other people are fleabags because when we have these problems, it means I'm a fleabag. And I want to give you a, I want to give you a story in regards to that. So years ago, I was working for a sculptor in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and he was a metal worker. And he actually is the guy who taught me how to really do a good job with torch cutting. He did a lot of mostly all his work was with stick welding. And it was a really cool shop because he would have 
just found objects all over the place. You have scattered all over the floor. It was like a floor of scattered steel parts from scrapyards and all this stuff just, but he would spread it out almost like leaves on the ground. Like there was no walking space. And then you have like five or six pedestals and on each pedestal was a lazy Susan. And then at each station, at each part of the shop, there was a buzz box, you know, a small stick welder at each pedestal. So imagine this big space, there's steel everywhere, but it's all spread out on the floor so he could see it. And he could see parts and see things and say, yeah, that, I know what I'm going to do with that later. And it was in order to see it. And I once worked for another sculptor who did the same thing, and except for the fact that he would have like, he would have like, uh, you know, three feet border from the wall out. And everything was, sp- all the steel scrap he had was spread out because he wanted to be able to see it because to think I could make something with this. So this one sculptor, he's got five or six pedestals and they're Lazy Susans. And that's actually what um, last week's episode, David Madero had these Lazy Susans. And then he was able to work with these sculptures. And then you, you can spin them around and then they're at their eye level. And then you can do add these little welds and stuff like that. And it was really cool. So this sculptor was someone I really appreciated. And, and he was a mentor to me for a long time. And um, he also had a... You know, he was a hustler. Like a lot of sculptors, a lot of makers, they have like little side hustles, right? So he was also hustling um, rugs. He was hustling like clothing. He was like, he had stuff for like yard, not yard sales, but like flea markets. And he had tons of these old uh, rugs. And he would used to do these sales. He would go and he would get a booth at a flea market and it would sell. It was almost like Persian rugs and all this tchotchkes and stuff like that. But it was like nice, like furniture and, you know, all this stuff. So he had this huge space and he was storing all these things. And one of the things that he was storing all these rugs. So he used to call, he's, I was, I rented space from him, but I was also his assistant. So then I would work a couple of days for him and then I would, be I would work in my shop for a couple days and then I had other steel sculptors that I was that I was helping or sculptors that I was helping to um I was helping to make their armatures like I was making a lot of armatures for sculptors plaster sculptors and people using all sorts of different things so there was one day I remember where he calls me oh get over you know yeah he was from England he came he called call me over and and um he would say, I need you to help me move some rugs. I'm not doing an English accent all day, guys. I'm not doing it. Ain't doing it. Ain't happening. So he he would he would uh he'd say to me, Can you help me move some these rugs? I say, Yeah, no problem. So I go up and we go up in the space, and you know, it's a welding shop, so it's already filthy, number one. So then we go up to the area where he's storing like rugs and chairs and furniture and stuff like that, and everything's like cram packed in these like spaces and everything is kind of filthy and it's just like you know everything's probably a little bit moth-eaten and as we're moving these rugs we notice that there are these little things bouncing off of them these little things and i was like what the fuck it was like you could see things bouncing and jumping and moving and it wasn't like a fly and it wasn't like a mosquito and he goes oh fuck we have fleas and I say like, fleas, and I I've heard of fleas from like dogs get fleas, and I heard about you know flea, you know I I didn't really know too much about fleas, and never had dogs yeah, for, until I was older. So we're moving this thing, and we're, I'm like getting bit, 
a little bit and stuff like that, and we just move the thing around. I don't really think too much of it. I don't think fleas are for fucking dogs. So we finish the day, take the subway home, go back to see my wife, and or it was my girlfriend at the time. And we're talking and talking. She's like, well, how was your day? I was like, yeah, I'm good, you know. And um, she she says, oh, we were talking, and she says, what did you do today? I'm like, oh, you know, I had to help, you know, move these rugs around. And you're never going to believe this, but there were fleas on the rugs. And she goes, fleas? And she grew up on a farm with animals and stuff like that, so she knows all about fleas. And she goes, fleas? I said, you, she said, you have fucking fleas? And I said, no, I don't have fleas. And she goes, yeah, you said you were around fleas, so you probably have fleas. And I was like, I was like, I was totally 100% trying to say, I don't have fleas, I don't have fleas, I don't have fleas. And I was yelling and spitting and da, 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 da. And she turns to me and she goes, say it, don't, say it, don't spray it, flea bag. And I laughed. I thought it was really funny. And then years later, so she called me a flea bag. My wife called me a flea bag because I was fucking covered in fleas. And then months later, or years, I think it was like a year later, she, as a birthday present, she got me an iPod Nano. And at the time, you could have them engraved with something on it. And she had engraved in my iPod Nano, Save it, say it, don't spray it, flea bag. So say it, don't spray it, flea bag has always been something, calling someone a flea bag to me has always been something that's been like a little bit, like a little bit part of my heart. And it's really me. So I, when I started referring to people, I, you know, I don't really, I liked, I like the idea of shock jockery. I like the idea of, you know, like radio wars to a certain degree, except for the fact that no one can really handle them. I know that I needed to say something that was slightly offensive, but not really that offensive. Like, not offensive enough that someone would be really offended. So you don't want to call someone a douchebag. You want to call someone a shit hit heel or shit bag. So I was just like, so like, I started calling people flea bags. And I said, don't be a flea bag. Don't be a flea bag. And it was, to me, it was always this funny little loving nod to the fact that I'm a fucking flea bag, a legitimate flea bag. So with that said, because I get a lot of messages saying, you know, you, you don't call me, you know, you're calling me a flea just this is the only time I'm going to tell this story. So say it, don't spray a flea bag. I'm the flea bag, and when I refer to somebody as a flea bag, I'm generally, you know, I'm I'm saying that I'm saying it with love and peace and respect and stuff like that because I'm the fucking flea bag. Okay, I'm the flea bag. I'm the flea bag who didn't make sure that you know we were all squared away with TriCast for this episode with Andrew Alexander. I'm the flea bag who didn't figure out that there was some problem with Mareko's audio. I should have, I should have figured something out before we whatever, and I we lost it on Knife Talk. I'm the flea bag when problems happen. I'm the flea bag, ladies and gentlemen. I'm the flea bag. So I'm when I'm referring to other people as flea bags, I'm really talking about myself. So with that said, is is um, the podcast has been a lot of fun. We've had a lot of great episodes. I'm looking forward to let's just talk about some of the things that are happening up. I got a podcast coming up very very uh, this coming week after this one, and then we are going to be doing a live podcast from Maker Camp. And the live podcast might be major flea bag time because what we've done is we're going to do a four person podcast and it's going to be, hopefully it's going to be great. And I'm looking forward to it. And just to explain, um, uh, Mark Adams, Mark Adams pictures. He takes all the great pictures at all these makers events. 
they're the classic. They're black and white. You've seen everybody has them, and you know Jimmy dresses guys, and, and we do. And I've had pick. He's taken my picture before. He listens to this podcast, and he f- seems to think that I'm not a flea bag, or maybe he does think I'm a flea bag. And about a year ago, he said to me, "Hey, I was thinking about doing a panel discussion at Maker Camp. Would you be interested in running it?" And I'm thinking to myself, "Oh, sure, no problem. I don't know. I, you know, I, yeah, that sounds great." And then, and then I didn't think about it until. And then part of me also thinks that. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. So, so all of a sudden, you know, a couple months ago, he says, "Hey, you still want to do that panel discussion?" I was like, "Oh yeah, the panel discussion." So he lined up tentatively. We have Leah Arpach, we have uh, we have Andrea DeLeon, we have Joshua Prince, and we have Keith Deason. All people that I've talked to, I know them. Uh, with the exception of Andrea DeLeon, I've interviewed all of them, and it's going to be interesting because what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to not talk about and all these people. All these three, these four, these four people are very interesting makers in their own, in different ways they've all all figured out ways in which to create their own voice in the things that they're doing and that's what this podcast is is for me is far more interesting than like what kind of tools do you have what do you have this what do you have th-? i want these people that i talk to to you know show their normalness and their regular humanity so instead of just being like what i have it's what they do so what we're going to do is we're going to do a panel discussion on creativity and how you you know make camps there's going to be the broadback guys will be there and total boat will be there and and all these woodworkers and blacksmiths and people showing you how to make things and then the real question is all right well yeah you now you got all these tools and you know how to do it how to how do you express yourself how do you create your own creativity that is when you see something that you know who it is without having to see their name that's it. So we're going to be doing that at Maker Camp. I'm really excited about that. Thanks to um, Mark for Mark Adams for for figuring that out. I got I uh, I got the I got the recording. I got mics for everybody. I got a recorder from Jesse Savage, and we're going to see what happens. I'm hesitant on live podcasting in general. I think an audience. I'm not 100 percent sure. What I think that happens with these live events is sometimes people get nervous and then they end up not saying what they would normally say so i like to make sure that when i'm talking to my guests i want them to feel comfortable enough that they're 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 unguarded and they'll say whatever they all have to say so we'll see what happens i'm looking forward to it i'm looking forward to seeing everybody at maker camp and uh we'll do a live taping of the panel discussion for mark and we'll probably if we can get if i can get my shit together and not be a flea bag we're going to put it up on the podcast and we'll see how it goes so with that said, once again, I apologize to Andrew Alexander, guys. He's terrific, and I get really bummed out about these little technical errors, and it's the only thing that makes me want to stop. It truly, truly is, because I can have great conversations with interesting people. I can have a lot of fun, joke around with people. P.S., go listen to last week's episode of of, of, the, of uh, Don't Eat the Berries. Don't Eat the Berries on, uh, on uh, Knife Talk, if, even if you don't make knives knife talk is not just for knife makers there are some fun funny moments that are we had a moment on knife talk with craig and i were talking about uh talking about guys bringing eagles to events is definitely worth it so um i appreciate your time i appreciate your listening i've been a lot of nice feedback uh if if you want to help me out 
Uh, share this podcast on your stories. Tell people about the podcast. Leave review wherever you listen to night, um, podcasts. Leave review for all these guys. Support my sponsors. Send them all a message saying you appreciate the fact that they sponsor the show. And I'm gonna work at. I'm gonna work it out, guys. We're gonna work it out to try to make sure that things like these don't happen. And usually, there are things that are out of my control. And I will try not to be a flea bag. But I've always been a flea bag. My wife knew I was a flea bag 25 years ago. I seem to always be a flea bag, and you guys are going to be flea bags with me, okay? All right, guys, so we will see you next week. Thanks again, uh, Andrew Alexander, Blacksmith Tools. Go follow him, uh, and uh, we'll see you later, flea bags. All right, see you later. Bye. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey.